We are a family, not a family defined by bloodline or last name, but by a father, a shared story, a new way to be human. Jesus has invited us to more than just a party or a dinner with friends, but into deep relationship in the family of God. From moments of pain to moments of happiness, from grief to celebration, we are family. And despite the work it takes, the fights we endure, and the learning we do along the way, we need connection with other people, to belong, to be a part of something bigger, to know and be known, to love and be loved. We were made for life together. We were made for community. So good. I want to thank uh, Chandler for pu pulling that together for us at the last minute. Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It is good to see you here and those across the way in Auditorium 2. Glad you're here with us. And those of you online, welcome as well. You know, we are in a series right now that we're calling Disciple, and uh, a lot has changed in our nation over the last several months, but one thing has not changed, and that is that we are still very much a church built around the idea of following Jesus. And for us, that means three things, and we express it in a triangle here. It means that we do life with Jesus in community and on mission. Uh, living life with Jesus in community on mission. That's the life of a disciple. And, disciple. and hopefully we can all agree that the need of the hour is for men and women who are spending time with Jesus to become like Jesus so we can be about the kinds of things that Jesus was about when he was in this world. And over the last several messages, we have said that being with Jesus today means that we are Scripture-saturated people who are being led by the Spirit. Scripture-saturated people who are being led by the Spirit. In other words, we are in the Word and led by the Spirit. Now, this morning, we're going to begin the first of three messages on living in community. I was talking with my friend Michael Easley about all this a couple of weeks back, and he, he talked about uh, how... Uh, how, how he talks about following Jesus today, and he basically says it this way. I've tweaked it a little bit, but the, the way we live as disciples of Jesus, the way that we change and grow to become more like Jesus, and the way that we put Jesus on display in our world today is by being in the Word, being led by the Spirit, and surrounded by God's people, surrounded by God's people. I really like that because it's so simple. This is how we live, this is how we change, this is what we need to be about Jesus' business in our world today. So I wanna start, as we begin this, this, these next three messages on community, I wanna give you a working definition of community. Gospel community is living in intentional relationships uh, with one another built around life and mission with Jesus. Gospel community is living in intentional relationships built around pursuing life and mission with Jesus. And being in gospel community is absolutely essential for all disciples of Jesus. Now, 
at, at a surface level, and you know this, but at a surface level, we tend to become like the people that we hang out with, the people that we spend time with. We tend to dress kind of like them, think like them. Uh, we oftentimes, we talk like them to some extent. Uh, a lot of times we listen to the same music as them and, 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 and things like that. And you, you, you know that. But at a deeper level, we tend to have or we tend to develop the same beliefs and values as them. They influence us. We influence them. We influence each other. Not, not that we are, uh, are clones of each other by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, we have different opinions and uh, about different things and different perspectives on different things, but, but our basic core beliefs and values are similar enough that when we disagree, it doesn't get in the way of the relationship. So community is living in intentional relationships built around the life and mission with Jesus. And the reason this kind of intentionality is so important, and we're gonna talk a lot about this this morning, is that community plays an essential role in our spiritual transformation. Community plays an essential role in spiritual formation, if you will. The Bible teaches that you will not, you cannot become the person that God created you to be apart from living in community, apart from being in intentional relationships with people who are serious about pursuing life and mission with Jesus. It's just not possible. Being surrounded by God's people is absolutely essential for you to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus today. Now, I know that that's hard for some of us to accept, and I think it's hard to accept for two reasons. The first reason being, we have grown up in a very individualized culture. Like if you grew up in this country, then you've been raised to believe that your highest goals and most cherished values are personal, not communal. We have been socialized to believe that my hopes, my dreams, what my wants, my needs are what life is all about and they come first, always. We seldom think what is best for our communities that the communities I live in, like communities like family and church and coworkers and social networks. No, we're, we're Americans, we're Americans, and my rights take precedence over everything else. And hear me, now I need to listen to my own preaching here as well. Rugged American individualism butts heads with loving biblical community. Rugged American individualism butts heads with loving biblical community. And I'm gonna show you that in just a few moments, but let's look at the second reason before we move forward. The second reason it's hard to accept that we cannot become disciples of Jesus apart from community is because we're now living in a culture of what I would call lonely connectivity. Lonely connectivity, sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? I mean, how can people be lonely but connected? Well, over the last 10 years, and I'm sure some of you have seen this in survey after survey, but in parallel with the rise of our digital age and social media, the number of people who mark lonely on these surveys has skyrocketed all through our nation. And this is easy to miss in our digital age because we've got Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and email and text messaging and FaceTime. We're more connected than ever, but connectivity is not the same thing as community. 
Connectivity is not the same thing as community. Sherry Turkle, and I'm not sure if, how familiar you are with her work, but she's a sociologist and a psychologist out of uh, MIT, and she's really the leading ex expert in the world today on what technology and the digital age is doing to people's inner lives. And she's been talking about this since 1996. I'm told that her book, Alone Together, is really good, but it's quite disturbing. And so I haven't read the book yet, but I recently watched a TED Talk that she did uh, back in uh, 2012 entitled Connected But Alone. And it was really good, and it was very eye-opening, so I did a little more research, and I found this quote from her book online that I think sums up uh, what she's trying to say. She says, we are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We would rather text than talk. When technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections and then easily connection becomes redefined as intimacy. Put otherwise, cyber intimacies slide into cyber solitudes. So loneliness is this deep ache, it's this pain at the heart of our culture, but most people don't understand how digital connectivity actually undermines community. We think we're experiencing community because we're more connected in social media than ever, but we are lonelier than ever before. So let's look at Jesus' invitation into community. Now, by the way, if this is your first time with us today, uh, whether you're here in person or you're watching online, welcome. We are very glad that you've chosen to worship with us. And one of the things that we want you to know about us is that we believe very strongly that as disciples of Jesus, we need partners for the journey of faith, uh, a community to help us along the way. And as we'll see today, we believe that Jesus invites all who follow him to be a part of a new kind of community, a new family. This uh, family of God is not, not simply a social club or a group of friends uh, who think and, and talk and act alike. No, God's family, this new community, is a diverse community of disciples that pursue life and mission with Jesus together. And despite the work that it takes and the conflicts we have from time to time, together we're figuring out how to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to carry forward his mission in our world today. Now, you remember the interconnectedness of the triangle and how each, of the po each point of the triangle uh, uh, connects with the other. Well, we are, what we've talked about being with Jesus in the word and by the spirit, but we are with Jesus Today, also, listen, when we are with his people, the Spirit of God indwells all of God's people. So when we're together like this, we experience Jesus together. We become like Jesus as we are encouraged and challenged to grow in faith and love in community with other disciples. I say again, the way we live as disciples, the way we change, the way we grow in faith and love is being in the word, led by the spirit, and surrounded by God's people. Now, I am going to continue this outline pattern that Jim laid out for us a couple weeks back, this pattern of pictures 
and responses. And by the way, if you were here last week, I showed you a picture of Jesus with his disciples during a pandemic uh, called, uh, it was Jesus and the Last Supper via Zoom. And uh, I thought that was pretty good. But after my comments about the Facebook fiasco last week, a very creative someone revised Da Vinci's Last Supper to picture like this. He calls it the Mask Supper. And so in Auditorium 2, we've got half the disciples wearing masks, but Jesus is in the middle of that. And Auditorium 1, you've got disciples who are not wearing masks, and Jesus is refereeing, and you notice in his left hand, he has, he's offering a mask uh, to the non-mask wearers, which... <laughs> I just thought that was, I thought it was hilarious. Anyway, we, we got to lighten things up a little bit, you know. So uh, anyway, as we look at Jesus' invitation to community, I'm going to give you two pictures and two responses. Two pictures and two responses. Picture number one. Now, we are going to look at four passages of Scripture from Matthew's Gospel to paint one picture of community. We, we have looked at a couple of these passages before, but we're going to look at them again today from a different angle of the triangle, okay? So Jesus, we're looking at Jesus' invitation into community. Matthew 4, 18, just listen. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read some to you and other passages I'm going to put on the screen. And if you want to try to find it in your Bible, that's great. But I'm going to read and screen, Okay. All right, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. I only want you to notice one thing, and I'm going to put it in the form of a question. Question, did Jesus just call one disciple? No, 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 no. No, he called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he's just getting started. Now, the thing I want you to notice about this, uh, these disciples, is these were good Torah-observant Jewish boys from up in Galilee, which was a hot spot for discipleship to a rabbi in first century Israel. But Jesus didn't just call religious people. uh, He called non-religious people. Look at Matthew chapter 9. This one's going to go on the screen, Matthew 9, 9. And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Same story. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, uh, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his first four disciples. And verse 11 says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher, your rabbi, eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, how, how rad is Jesus, by the way? I mean, can we just all agree that he is pretty awesome? I mean, right here, he's breaking all the rules. He's laying out how his new community, God's family, will include people from all kinds of different backgrounds, religious and non-religious, all kinds of socioeconomic classes, and all kinds of political views. 
Matthew is a tax collector. He is a Benedict Arnold, a traitor to his people. He is a Jew working for the Roman Empire, an oppressor of the oppressed. So it's not surprising that his circle of friends would be other tax collectors and sinners. Sinners was a term in the first century for non-observant or non-religious Jewish men and women. So already we're getting the picture that there's going to be quite a bit of diversity in Jesus' new little community. Now turn over to Matthew 10, just one page to the right, and look at verse 1, or just listen again. Matthew 10, 1, and Jesus called to him, uh, himself, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, Jesus has a whole lot more than 12 disciples. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women who are following him. But here we have the names of the men in his community group, his inner circle, the 12 apostles. Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Observation. It's interesting to me that only three men get a descriptor beyond who they're the son of. In other words, there's two guys that we already know. We know Matthew, the tax collector, and we know Judas, the betrayer. But this third guy is Simon the Zealot. We don't really know anything about him. We don't read anything about him before or after. So what's up with that? Why does he get a descriptor? Well, Matthew, the tax collector, the former traitor, is telling us something important because we do know what a zealot is. Zealots were a violent insurgent sect in, the, in, in first century Israel. Uh, they were... Uh, politically motivated nationalists who wanted to overthrow the Roman government and they used guerrilla tactics to fight Rome. They were called the Sicario, hitmen, assassins. I think it was Emily Blunt who was in a movie by that name. But Sicario back in the day meant the dagger men, men who carried a curved dagger hidden in their robe and they would sneak up behind a Roman military officer in a big crowd, they would slit his throat, and then they would disappear into the crowd. That is Simon the Zealot. So can you imagine Matthew and Simon in the same community group? The tax-collecting traitor and the dagger-carrying zealot in the same community group talking about the parable of the sheep and the goats. Each of them would be pointing the finger at the other as the goats. That's like a MAGA hat-wearing right-wing Republican in the same community group with one of the self-proclaimed leaders of Antifa. I mean, do you think there would be tension here? Or do you think they would have had words? Do you think politics would have come up? Absolutely. Do you think it, do you th do you think it would have gone well? Uh-uh. No. No, it would not have gone well. Jesus puts together this little community group of diverse people, and it's not just socio-political differences between tax collectors and zealots. No, you also had different personalities that would 
also have clashed. Like you got Peter, type eight, high D, loud, impulsive, and then you have Thomas, what? Maybe type four, high, high SC, uh, introspective, introverted, cynical. Uh, oh yeah, there'd be conflict there. And, and uh, years ago, I, disciple, I was discipling these two guys and they were so different, I decided to put them in the same group with me. Like, why disciple two guys when I could put them both together and, and save some time? They were from completely opposite ends of the personality spectrum. One was fast-paced and task-oriented, and the other was slow-paced and people-oriented, and I was forever refereeing between the two because both of them baptized their personality and called it spirituality. And so it was truly a growth opportunity for us all, me included. But then you have James and John who are called in another passage, the sons of thunder. That was Jesus' nickname for these guys. Now, that's not a compliment, by the way. I, I, I mean, just to clarify, when you're with Jesus, you don't want him calling you the sons of thunder. I mean, these men were fiery. Like, there's this one story. Hey, Jesus, call down fire from heaven and give these people a taste of what hell is going to be like. And Jesus is like, um, I think you, 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 you missed the Sermon on the Mount. Were you, were you not taking notes there? I mean, did you not hear me talk about, like, loving your enemies, bro? Okay, not bro. I doubt Jesus ever said bro, whatever. But you have these two guys Sons of Thunder, next to Judas, who's cold and analytical and calculating and all that. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus was intentional about inviting different men from different backgrounds with different personalities and different political views to be in community group with each other? I mean, was that intentional? Well, of course it was intentional. Jesus is not casual about anything. He's always on point. And on the one hand, this sounds so idealized, all of this diversity and inclusion, but the reality is I doubt they had an easy time getting along. I mean, if you ever read the Gospels, you know that's true. Here's, here's uh, one example. Uh, you can turn over to Matthew 20, verse 20, or I'm going to put this one up on the screen. Uh, you've heard, many of you have heard this story before. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, uh, would you make it so that these two sons of mine can sit one on your right hand and the other on your left hand when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he looks at the boys and he says, are you able to drink of the cup that I'm, I'm gonna drink of? And they said, oh yeah, we can, no, Jesus, no problem. We can drink whatever you drink. You know, he said to them, oh, you're gonna drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those who have, to whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. So picture this, you got the sons of thunder cowering behind mommy dearest. Not so sons of thunder now, are they? I mean, and mommy is essentially asking Jesus, hey Jesus, when you come into your kingdom and you sit down on your throne, will you make James your vice president and John your secretary of state? Something like that. And when the other disciples, the other 10, hear about this, they are indignant. That's Bible for really angry and ticked off. 
and they go on a Facebook rant about, you know, how James and John, the so-called sons of thunder, are really mama's boys, and, and they think they're better than everybody else. I mean, you'd be ticked off too. I mean, in this story, you've got selfish ambition, you got jealousy, gossip, infighting, going behind the other guy's back, and mommy's involved in all of that. But is Jesus surprised by that? No, he uses it as a teaching moment. This is a growth moment here. So at verse 25, he says, but Jesus called, called them to himself, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It's not going to be that way among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, Jesus is absolutely amazing. And he goes off on this teaching about how his way of doing things uh, turns the world's way of doing things upside down. And that's another sermon for another time. But, all right, let's get back to big picture. These four passages paint one picture, and this is how I'm describing that one picture. Jesus' invitation to discipleship is an invitation into community. They cannot be separated. A community, look at this, made up of people so different that conflict is inevitable. Jesus' invitation to discipleship is an invitation into community, a community that is so diverse, so different, that conflict is inevitable. You see, there's this ideal of community Jesus and the 12 disciples. Let's all join hands and sing Kumbaya with all this diversity. There's the ideal, and then there's the messy reality of community, backbiting, gossiping, going behind each other's back, thinking they're better than each other. I mean, you see that. There's the ideal of community and the messy reality of community. And listen, discipleship happens in the space in between. Discipleship happens in the space between the ideal and the messy reality, the real, of community. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you this. We're going to build on that thought with picture number two that comes from the book of Acts. All right, picture two. Again, we see the same picture in the book of Acts. We're going to read a lot of scripture. Uh, most of it I'm going to ask you just to listen to. If you've ever read the New Testament, you'll remember that the story that I'm going to unfold next uh, comes right after the Holy Spirit who came to create what we now call the church. And we see a snapshot or summary of what life was like in that first church in Acts 2.42, familiar passage. And these disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, the fe and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, turn the page or look on screen. Here's another snapshot, exact same church, Acts chapter four, verse 32. Now, all those who believed were of one heart 
and one soul. And no one, had, uh, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, that, that sounds amazing, right? I mean, I mean, how many times have you said or heard someone say, oh, man, I just wish we could get back to the days of the early church. Oh, we just need to get back to the early church. And lots of books, hundreds of books literally have been, uh, been written on how we need to get back to the early church, the ideal church. But keep reading, chapter five, verse one. Exact same church, here's another story. This has to be a part of the picture. Just listen this time. Now there was a man, Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, who sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? I just appreciate Peter's mild and gentle tone here. Um, you have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. I mean, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after you sold it, wasn't the money yours? It was at your disposal. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to us, you've lied to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. <laughs> and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Yeah, yeah. Then some young men came forward, wrapped, him up, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Oh, I wish our church was like the early church. Uh, are you sure? Ushers, uh, we need you to, uh, someone here, so we, we need to come forward. We have someone here who lied to the Holy Spirit by singing a song of commitment that they haven't lived out during the week. And they just fell over dead. So would, uh, would, you, take, uh, would you take him out and bury him out behind the back park, parking lot for us? I mean, Josh Amos, who's over like our connections and our fit team, he, he would have to put together a burial team. Uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure you really wish that our church was like the early church. My point is the early church, the ideal church, filled with the Holy Spirit and power, filled with people who were unselfishly giving to help the poor members of the con congregation, it was still messy at times because the followers of Jesus were messed up at times. So again, do you see here, you have a gap between the ideal of community and the messy reality of community and discipleship. Growth as, as a disciple happens in the space in between. And this tension between the ideal and the messy reality, it's hard for a lot of people to accept. It's, it's hard for me sometimes, but it is the reality. I mean, you see the same picture all the way through the rest of the New Testament. And I don't have time to go through all that, but if you know anything about the Bible, think about this. The local churches in Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, uh, Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, they're all made up of very different people which made conflict inevitable. They're not just battling persecution from the outside. They're also struggling with church members who are very different people. 
men and women and slaves and free and Jews and Gentiles and religious and non-religious and rich and poor. And that means there would be all kinds of different perspectives, all kinds of different personalities, all kinds of different opinions, all kinds of different politics. So conflict was inevitable. I mean, I mean, why do you think there are so many admonishments in the New Testament letters to love one another and to care for one another and give preference to one another in love and to talk nice to one another? It's because of the messy reality that they have a hard time getting along. I found this quote online, I think sums it up so well. Uh, here it is, just listen, just listen. Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal, and it all seems perfect. They feel like they're surrounded by saints and, and heroes, or at least the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater the idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. If people manage to get through the second period, they come to the third phase, that of realism and true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven or hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are, and they are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. Now, I found a, a picture of this, this quote, online by a guy na named Jared uh, Pickney, but then I drew it out on my whiteboard so it kind of lines more up with how I've been talking. So this is my artistic rendering of the three phases. You got phase one, the ideal. We come, somebody comes to a church, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. They get in a community group, oh, the people are so nice. And then they find out, oh, it's not, not everything that I thought it was gonna be. And then there's the letdown. And then there's the messy reality. And this is like stinks. It's at that point that people decide, I'm not gonna go to this church anymore. I'm just gonna go find me another church that lines up with everything that I believe. But you'll never find that church. Uh, or uh, same with the community group. But if you stick Stick it out. If you stay put and you start the climb, you begin to accept people that are different from you and their views and their opinions and perspectives. And then you realize that you're, I mean, you become a more authentic person. You don't try to pretend. You don't wear a mask. This is who I am. I'm a messy person. Everybody's a messy person. And then you extend agape love, uh, unconditional sacrificial love, and we, you finally get to gospel community. The sad thing is, most people go their entire life and never experience gospel community. So here's my summary for picture two from scripture outside the gospels, but of course it's tied to the gospels. Well, let's review first. Let me put up picture number one because I want to let you see both pictures at one time. Picture number one is behind door number one. Picture number one, Jesus' invitation to discipleship is an invitation into community, a community made up of people so different the conflict is inevitable. Picture two, building on that. Gospel community is essential for a disciple of Jesus. It's not optional. Living in the messy reality of community is the primary way that we are transformed to become like Jesus. So, two pictures, now two responses. Response number one. 
Get rid of your idealized picture of the church and God's people. Get rid of your idealized picture of the church and God's people. The fact is there are no perfect disciples. I'm certainly not one. And if there are no perfect disciples, that means there is no perfect church. People are messy. And so group life is messy. That is the messy reality. So live in that reality, not some romanticized ideal that the church is perfect and it ought to be this way and it ought to be that way and it should be this way because that romanticized ideal is sure to disappoint. The fact is, sometimes Christians will disappoint you. Sometimes church leaders will disappoint you. Sometimes they'll hurt you by the things they say and the things that they do. Sometimes, sadly, and I hope this never happens to you, but I know some of you experience, sadly, sometimes you may be crucified by Christians and their arrogant religiosity. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's the reality. And it's a reality that has been with us since Jesus and the disciples and since the early church. Now look, I'm a pastor. I know what it means to be on the receiving end of someone's sharp criticism. But my faith does not rest on the faithfulness of Christians, but on the faithfulness of Christ. And he has never disappointed me. Oh, I mean, there were things I didn't get that I prayed for, and there were things I hoped he would do for me that he didn't do for me. But my faith informs me that if God doesn't give me something that I want or think I need, then it's not the best thing for me. He's faithful not to give me things that I want that aren't the best thing for me. Jesus is faithful. He never fails. He never fails. Christians, mm, not so much. So get rid of the idea that if your church and your community group is not perfect, then you just got to pick up your marbles and go somewhere else, find another church. I just picked up a book by a guy named Ronald Rollhauser, and it's entitled The Holy Longing, and he talk, he's got this great quote about messy community life. He says, part of the very essence of Christianity is, is to be together in concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions those faults will bring us. Spirituality for the Christian can never be an individualistic quest, the pursuit of God outside of community, family, and church. The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven but is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor on earth is a liar since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if she or he cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's a paraphrase of of 1 John. He goes on and he says, hence, a Christian spirituality, or what I would just say, discipleship, is always as much about dealing with each other as it is with dealing with God. I, I hate that last line, but it's so true. Christian spirituality, discipleship is always as much about dealing with each other as it is dealing with God, meaning you cannot truly live in a relationship with a perfect, all-loving, all-forgiving, all-understanding God in heaven if you cannot live in relationships with a less than perfect, less than forgiving, and less than ideal understanding of community here on earth. 
I don't care how introverted you are. I don't care how extroverted you are. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how many friends you have. Community is absolutely essential. And just by the way, community is not necessarily the same thing as having a friend group. Friendship does not always equal gospel community. Not if by gospel communities we mean intentional relationships built around pursuing life and mission with Jesus. I'm saying get rid of, give up your idealistic picture of the church, of Christians, of community, and anchor yourself in the faithfulness of Jesus. His death for you on the cross, his rising from the dead to give you eternal life, his ascending back to the Father to intercede for you throughout all of your life. Get rid of your picture-perfect view of community. Conflict in community of diverse disciples is inevitable. So when that conflict happens, look at Jesus, not the messy people in the church who, like you, who, like me, do not always reflect the love and grace of Jesus. Build your faith on the faithfulness of Christ, not on the faithfulness of Christians, and then work through those issues with Christians. Now, the second response to these pictures in, uh, that we see of community in, in the scriptures is this. Number two, first one was get rid of your idealistic pictures of community. Number two, get involved in gospel community. Step into gospel community. I like how Paul put, Tripp puts it. He says, your walk with God is a community project. Your walk with God is a community project. If that's true, and it is, as we've seen with Jesus and Paul and the rest of the New Testament, if that's true, then why is it true that your walk with God is a community project? Well, first, when Jesus called his first disciples, I'm going to say something shocking. When Jesus called his first disciples, you ready for this? When Jesus called his first disciples, not a single one of them heard him inviting them into a personal relationship with God. Jesus' invitation to be his disciple was not as much personal as it was communal. It was a call to become a member of a new community, a new family. No one would have heard Jesus say, come enter into a personal relationship with me and, and it'll just be you and me, bro. I mean, he didn't say bro. It, it, no, no, it's not just, I mean, there used to be the song, the song way back in the what, 80s or 90s, like me and Jesus got a good thing going. The other song, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something shocking, but I love the song In the Garden, but it's not all about you. I come to the garden alone. You know, remember that? What, what's that line about, um, I'm having a Biden moment. Um, the joy we share as we gather there, none other has ever known. None other has ever known it like me. It's just me and Jesus. Yeah. Now, we do have a personal relationship with Jesus, but the personal relationship is set in the context of communal relationships. And as we saw in the stories from Matthew's gospel, Jesus did not just have a disciple, he had disciples. It was never just Jesus and Peter. It was Jesus, James, and John. Or Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Or it's Jesus and the 12. Or it's Jesus and the 70. I'm saying that the scriptures teach you cannot follow Jesus alone. You can't. You can't separate your discipleship to Jesus from involvement in a community, specifically in a local church, 
because the two go together. And even more specifically, in a community group or some kind of small group of intentional relationships built around pursuing life and mission with Jesus. And again, I know this goes against the grain of how we've been raised in this country. It goes against the grain of how we are being socialized to believe that if we're connected online, that's all we need. I, I hear you. I'm just fine on my own. Really, I am. Hear me. No, you're not. Not according to Jesus, not according to Paul, not according to the rest of the New Testament writers. If, when Jesus calls you to be his disciple, that, if that call is a call into community, that means you and I need to be in community with other people pursuing life with Jesus in community on mission with him. Now, that's the first reason uh, that... Uh, that Ah, uh, boy. The first reason, listen, the first reason your walk with God is a community project is because that's how Jesus called disciples. All right, now here's, here's the second one. The second reason your walk with God is a, is, is a community project is because community, and I said this way back at the beginning of the message, community is the primary context where personal transformation takes place. It's a primary context where personal transformation takes place. All of the exhortations found in the New Testament to personally grow and mature in your faith and to grow in love are given to people living in the messy reality of less than ideal communities. But we are forever thinking about personal growth and transformation only in terms of being in the Word and led by the Spirit. We ignore or we downplay the supreme importance of being surrounded by God's people in community. Most of the time, when we think about applying Scripture in daily life, we tend to think, what does this mean for me? Seldom do we think, what does this mean for us? Most of the commands in the New Testament have an us focus, not a me focus. I'm not saying this wrong to personally apply the word. Don't get off that. Don't, say, don't go out of here saying Charlie said personal application of the Bible is heresy. No, 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 no. All this to say, if you want to grow and mature in becoming more and more like Jesus, involvement in gospel community is not optional. It is essential. So here's what I'm going to leave you with this week. And remember, we got two other weeks, uh, and there's more to come, more application to come for us. But in this COVID-19 pandemic environment we're living in that's keeping a lot of us apart, I want you to think this way about getting involved in gospel community. If you are already in some kind of small group here at Fellowship Greenville, I want you to start thinking about and start talking about how you can turn the focus of that group into a community of intentional relationships built around pursuing life and mission with Jesus. Think about how your existing group can become more intentional about encouraging one another to, to follow Jesus, his life, his mission. Remember what I say earlier. Simply having a group of friends 
it's not a bad thing, but it's not necessarily gospel community, and neither is just a Bible study group, and I'm not against Bible study. It's great to get, get together and study the Word, but what if all of the groups we were in, we were all in agreement to say, you know what, in the world we live in today, you know, we're not going to make it through all this if we're not intentional about being the followers of Jesus. So how can we encourage one another more specifically and more, in a more focused way? How can we have intentional relationships built around the life and mission of Jesus? You have to ask questions like, so what would have to change in your group for it to become a true gospel community? I want you to start thinking about that, start talking about that, start praying about that. Just begin the conversation. And here's the thing, I can't answer that question for you because I'm not in your group. But what I am saying is, you take responsibility. You, you explore what that, might mean, what that might mean. You take the initiative. What need, might need to change for your group to become more intentional about pursuing life and mission with Jesus together? And if you are not in a small group here at Fellowship Greenville, I want you to think about your friends, groups of friends, existing and existing relationships. I mean, now think about that. Do you have a group of friends who are followers of Jesus that you could gather in your home or uh, through a Zoom call? Or you could use something like the community Bible reading journal that we keep talking about week after week after week, which, where you've got a group of people and they're reading the same scripture every day and they're writing uh, either email or texting each other about how God has spoken to me this day. I'm saying find a group of friends or take your existing group of friends and begin talking about how as followers of Jesus we need to be more intentional about pursuing life and mission with Jesus together, together. That's all I'm, I, but the focus of what I'm saying is I want you to take initiative. I want you to take personal responsibility. If this is what Jesus, if this is what these pictures of Jesus and Paul and the early church and the New Testament churches are like, then, then, then we absolutely have to take this more seriously than maybe we've ever taken it before. Take personal responsibility, personal initiative to create gospel community. So this week, we're gonna end, I'm just, I'd say this, let's commit to being in the word, led by the spirit, and surrounded by God's people. How will that work out for you? In the Word, led by the Spirit, and surrounded by God's people, creating gospel community. Father God, thank you so much that what we see in your Word is so clear and evident, but somehow, because of how we were raised or because of this lonely yet connected digital age we live in, or maybe it's just church traditions we grew up with, um, we've not really dug deep into what biblical community, what gospel community is all about. So, God, as we've begun that conversation this morning, um, let us not just walk away from this morning um, and just go back to the next thing on our agenda, but let these words, Holy Spirit, bring back 
these words and these thoughts and ideas and create in our hearts a hunger to create and be involved in gospel community. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.